0: Hello and welcome to Women Positively Aging, the podcast for women in midlife and older who want to live well for longer. I'm your host, Barbara Bray, registered nutritionist in the UK and PhD researcher in healthy aging diets at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm looking forward to guiding you through this series where we learn from the experts in the latest science, as well as people with lived experience about the things that we can do to live well for longer. Hello and welcome to Women Positively Ageing, the episode on brain health. The brain is a complex organ that controls our movement, our emotions and stores our precious memories. When we talk about brain health, there are a few definitions and the one I have chosen is from WHO due to its inclusive language. Brain health, Is the state of brain functioning across cognitive, sensory, social, emotional, behavioral and motor domains, allowing a person to realize their full potential over life course, irrespective of the presence or absence of disorders? How do we maintain our brain health? Is it possible for us to reduce our dementia risk as we age? To answer these questions and more, I have invited Professor Anne-Marie Minnehain from the University of East Anglia in Norwich. Her research looks at the impact of certain foods and the Mediterranean diet on brain health. And she'll also discuss the possible effects of menopause on dementia risk. Anne-Marie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good morning, Barbara. Thank you for inviting me.
0: It's a real pleasure. And I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your research. And then we'll go on to get into the detail of the effect of diet on brain health.
1: Yeah, sure thing, Barbara. Yeah, so I'm a nutrition biochemist. Um, I've been working in the field of nutrition biochemistry for longer than I care to remember, several decades. Um, and I started off actually in the cardiovascular field, um, particularly omega-3 fatty acids and cardiovascular health. And over the years, it's become really obvious that our cardiovascular well-being is a huge determinant of our brain health and that omega-3 fatty acids are a huge determinant of our brain health. So probably over the last decade or so, my myself and, and, and the group I work with have been doing a lot of work on uh, particularly omega-3 fatty acids, plant-based foods, and brain health, uh, with a recent focus actually on the menopausal period and the changes that occur in women through the menopausal period, and what kind of strategies we can recommend to women to kind of mitigate the neurophysiological changes that happen through the perimenopause.
0: Thank you, we'll, we'll delve into that as we go and first of all I'd like to start by talking about the effect of diet and, and also not just diet thinking foods but also hydration on mm. brain health.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess just to start off by saying the brain is an absolutely amazing organ and we only get one. We, we don't get a replacement. So, so we kind of really need to look after it and, and kind of what the fuel that we, we, we use, which is our food and our hydration, have a huge impact on our brain health all throughout life. And it's never too early or it's never too late to start. I think that's quite an important message. I mean, you mentioned a really important thing, Barbara, hydration. It's often forgotten because, uh, you know, as we age and as, as our kidney and bladder function isn't as it used to be when we get younger and we need to go to the bathroom more often. Often what happens is is our hydration goes down. And um, actually, it's recommended that we consume a, at least a litre and a half of fluids a day. And that can be in the form of, of water or uh low-sugar squashes or high-quality juices, teas, coffees, even some alcohol. But actually, if we're dehydrated, it has a huge impact on our cognitive performance. Uh, And it's, you know, it's one of the simplest ways, actually, and and one of the most forgotten ways to improve cognition is to make sure we're hydrated. Absolutely. And can
0: I just come in there? Because obviously we're talking about as we age, but I think for people in, their, in midlife, in 40s and 50s, thinking about having a long working day, just how important that hydration is for, for concentration. And I think it's very easy as the day goes on to start to lose concentration. So what you're saying is we need to think about if we're feeling a bit, not like we're switched on, it's to make sure that we're properly hydrated and reach for that bottle of water
1: absolutely and it's so easily forgotten and it, it's almost like you know whatever we do throughout the day we should have our water bottle beside us really you know which i try to do when i'm at work at, at my desk i fill up my water bottle in the morning and just make sure it's empty by the end of the day so i think you're absolutely right for all of us it's it's not just cognition it's attention it's mood it's every element of brain health it's really affected by our hydration status. And it's interesting because I watch my, my
0: niece and nephew, they're quite young, they're five and three, and they're so switched on to that, just going to the fridge and getting water straight away. And I kind of wish I'd had that, that discipline from an early age because it mm. carries on, doesn't it, as you age. But anyway, I think mm. I'm learning from them. Mm. <laughs> and now I'd like to talk about the, the foods that we should be eating and, and the difference that diet makes on our brain health.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess we all kind of get the general advice that we should eat more fruits and vegetables, but I guess we could make an effort today in our conversation to get a bit more granular around that and what ex- what exactly we mean. So certainly there's a lot of evidence that a, a plant-based diet, whole plant foods, Mediterranean style diet is beneficial for brain health. And we've done a lot of work uh, at the University of East Anglia researching whether if folks in the UK adopt uh, a Mediterranean-style plant-based diet, that we have the same benefits. And actually, all our research so far has shown that that is absolutely the case, um, that it's as beneficial in the UK as as if you were living in Mediterranean countries. So I guess the things we talk about when when we talk about a plant-based diet is, is certainly plenty of whole plant foods. So fruits, vegetables... Legumes, which is peas, beans, and lentils. Nuts, nuts are an absolutely marvelous food, and and we're only just beginning to realize the health benefits of them. I mean, there's some concern that they're high in calories, but if eaten in moderation, they're certainly an excellent food. When we talk about fruits and vegetables, the research has shown that green leafy vegetables are particularly beneficial for brain health. So things like your chard, your spinach, your savoy cabbage, your, your, your lettuces, your, your rockets, things like that. And also there's evidence that anthocyanin, rich uh, fruits and vegetables are beneficial. So they're kind of your purple, your red and your blue. So your berries are the obvious um, example, but also things like red cabbage and red onions are a really nice source of anthocyanins. So it seems like the green leafy vegetables and your anthocyanin-rich foods are particularly beneficial.
0: And that's great um, advice because when you think about the generic advice that we get, it is about five a day and it doesn't delve in, like you say, to the detail of exactly what proportion of foods from different colours. And I've noticed when you look at food based dietary guidelines from countries such as South Korea or China, they do say the colours that you need to include. So I think it's interesting that we're also, we also know that,
1: but we're not giving that out as advice. That's right. I mean, I think it's kind of widely known that we should have a variety. You know, so rather than having five apples a day or five oranges, there is different bioactives and different fruits and vegetables. So I think variety is tremendously important. The other thing to say is, you know, not everybody has access to fresh fruits and vegetables all of the time. And actually frozen and tend options are just as good. You know, there's there's this slight myth that somehow if something's in a tin, it's not going to be quite as good. As long as there's not lots of salt in your tin, you know, yes. you know, a, 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 a tender or a frozen option is absolutely fine as an alternative. And I guess the other thing to say is a Mediterranean-style diet often uses this kind of sofrito-based sauce in cooking, which is a sort of tomato, onion, garlic-based sauce. And it seems to be, again, that that is... A very helpful type of source to incorporate into your kitchen in your daily practices. Also, for for brain health, gut health is tremendously important, uh, and we're we're beginning to realise a lot now about the connection between the gut and the brain and the gut brain axis. And and you know, as as the research develops, there's an understanding that the connection happens at a whole variety of levels. There's the enteric nervous system, which connects the the gut with the brain. There's a huge number of hormones produced by the gut, which affect brain health. There's also substances like short-chain fatty acids. And actually, the gut itself produces a whole host of neurotransmitters, which the brain produces, but the gut also produces. So we we kind of have, as, as the years are going by, we're really beginning to realize what the physiological basis is. The connection between the gut and the brain, and one tremendously important way to retain gut health is through ensuring that you have sufficient fibre in your diet, and and consume as much whole grains as you can.
0: And that also links into the fruit and vegetable advice, isn't it? Because we know that fruit and vegetables, that depending on the types you eat, you're going to have quite a lot of fibre as well. So, I think having that whole grain and the fruit and veg together is going to have a big impact but it's not that easy is it to get enough fiber in your day when you
1: think about the amount that we currently eat and the amount that we should eat absolutely i mean fiber i think only about seven percent of the population meet the fiber recommendation which is to consume 30 grams of fiber a day so it's it's i mean for a lot of us a significant amount of fiber comes from the breads we consume and the breakfast cereals we consume And a very useful hack, which I often recommend to people when they're trying to choose a high quality breakfast cereal or a high quality bread is when you look at the label in your breakfast cereal and look at the carbohydrate to total fiber ratio, it should be less than 10. So if you have, for example, um, 10 grams of carbohydrate in in your portion of, of breakfast cereal, then you should have more than one gram of fiber. Yeah. So, uh, and for bread, that ratio should be less than six. So, the carbohydrate to fiber ratio should be less than six. So, that's a good way to kind of ensure that uh, you choose um, a good quality bread or, or, or a good quality breakfast cereal, because breads and breakfast cereals are are quite a substantial source of fiber in our diet. So, I think it's quite important that you that, that we're quite proactive in choosing high quality breads and high quality breakfast cereal, and, and look at the label and look at the fiber content. That's
0: interesting because not all labels state the amount of fibre because obviously it's optional for labelling. So it's almost like we have to do a little bit more homework and investigate what the fibre content
1: would be in some foods. That, that's right. And of course, other other things we can do is, you know, a, a lot of the carbohydrate we eat is, can often be quite white carbohydrates. So it can be the white the white rices and the white pastas. If you replace your your white pasta and your and your white rice with with brown pasta and brown rice, that's an also a really, really useful way to increase your fiber intake. Um, And things like your nuts are a tremendously good source of fiber, legumes are a tremendously good source of fiber. So you know your peas, your beans, and your lentils contain a really nice amount of fiber. So again, you know, just just get those into your curries, get those into your stews. They're very versatile foods actually
0: they are and i think there's a lot of interest at the moment particularly in the food sector and food manufacturing about designing in pulses into the foods that we readily eat i'm starting to see lots of snack foods now being made from a pea or a lentil base and obviously increasing your snack food isn't the ideal way to do it but I suppose every little helps doesn't it? it
1: exactly you know and I think it's just as I say the recommendation is 30 grams a day it's just to have a little look at your labels and just to kind of see you know get five grams here get four grams there and it, it soon adds up you know if you're if you're kind of just likely more aware of your food labels when you're purchasing your food
0: that's a really good tip. And I think now a lot of people are shopping online. It's it's easier to access the information and, and look it up. So hopefully that, that's going to encourage listeners to change their habits. Yeah, I'd like yeah. just to, to go back to what you were saying about cognitive health. Can you just define for us what cognitive health is? Because you've touched on brain health, but I want
1: to really pull out some differences. Absolutely. So... I mean, of course, just, you know, we all talk about dementia prevention these days, but, you know, not all of us get dementia. Actually, only about one in 14 over the age of 65 have dementia. But cognition and cognitive health is relevant to all of us because for all of us, our cognitive function defined, you know, does incline to decline with age. It's kind of a natural part of aging. But a definition of cognition is um, acquiring and Acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. That's, okay. that, and, and it includes such things as attention, memory, problem solving, decision making, language, planning, inhibition, orientation. So all of those kind of domains are, are part of what we call cognition. Our ability to acquire knowledge, process knowledge, make decisions.
0: That's really helpful, so when we're kind of going upstairs and thinking I need to go and find something and then you forget what it is when you've gone upstairs it's that that memory that we're we're struggling with and it's is that really that I think a lot of people want to improve when you get to midlife whether you're male or female I hear a lot of people saying I just can't remember everything and I don't know whether that's to do with the fact that life has got a lot more complicated or whether it's because we're not training ourselves to concentrate and develop
1: that that cognitive health that we need yeah, I mean, certainly a stress in a busy mind really affects our cognition. you know, mm-hmm. So I, I, I think we all realize when, when we're when we're stressed, our ability, our, our cognition declines. So I think busy, highly active lives, which often happens to us in our middle age, is, is you know, and, and actually if we can de-stress or calm down, you know, our cognition immediately improves. So don't worry too much if, if it happens to you on occasion. It, it's not a sign you're heading for dementia. It's, it, it's often a sign that, you know, and, and, we, and of course we all focus on what we forget. We never focus on what we remember. I think as human beings we are quite hard on ourselves.
0: Um, that's interesting I'm I'm going to focus on that going forward I'm going to focus on what I remember because it's so easy to focus on what I forget and the thing that makes me laugh is because my mother's got dementia often she'll ask me to do things but I'll forget what she's asked me to do and I'm not the one that's got
1: dementia
0: (laughs) (laughs) this is not going to end well is it That should remind me
1: of something that I said I was going to do. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> uh, I think I think that's the beauty of to-do lists, isn't it? It kind of frees up <laughs> free, frees up your your short-term memory.
0: <laughs> I certainly hope so. I'm going to make sure that I focus on my to-do list and and congratulate myself for the things that I remember going forward, and that's yeah. certainly a much better place to be. So it's been an interesting turn of conversation, and now like to introduce menopause because you've obviously talked about some of the things to do with hormones that can have an impact so where does menopause fit into this discussion?
1: Yeah I mean it's really important and I think it's only in recent years that it's got due attention to be honest. Menopause itself the definition of menopause and a typical the average age of menopause is 51. Uh, and menopause is defined as when you haven't had a bleed or amenorrhea for one year. That's the official definition of menopause. But of course, that's preceded by a period of four to 10 years of what we call perimenopause when their hormones are in a great state of flux. Yes. And that period actually for about two thirds of women has a significant effect on their brain health. And for some women it can be quite modest, but for some women it can be quite consequential. And it's really not surprising because if you look at the brain and various regions of the brain, those regions are full of oestrogen receptors. So it kind of makes sense from a physiological perspective that once you get a decline in oestrogen that those brain regions are affected and that you do see an effect on your brain health. Often, once you come through the perimenopausal period, you know, a lot of the effects you see, which are, uh, you know, effects on on mood, effects on sleep, uh, effects on, on memory and, and concentration and attention, and also verbal fluency, you know, you you, you lose your words. Um, yes. Often, those things are experienced to some degree by a lot of women as you transition from premenopause to menopause during that perimenopausal period so it, it it is a real effect it it certainly is a real effect for a lot of women and from the research
0: that you've done is there anything that you can do to mitigate the issues they're experiencing during that
1: transition from a, a dietary point of view or otherwise I mean, from a dietary point of view, I, I guess, you know, the menopause is a real window of opportunity. So a lot of the things we're talking about are really important to instigate. The things we've talked about already are really important to instigate during that perimenopausal period. I mean, what our research has shown in experimental models is that the menopause is associated with a real decline in uptake of omega-3 fatty acids into the brain. Okay. And that actually, at least in, in, in model systems, menopause results in, in a decline in the omega-3 fatty acid DHA in the brain, docosohexanoic acid in the brain. So I think it's really important during that menopausal period that women ensure they have sufficient oily fish in their diet. Or if oily fish isn't something that, that, that I mean, oily fish are a very versatile and tasty food. But if it's something you don't consume, then supplements are always an alternative. So I guess that's that's kind of one suggestion. Um, as I say, all the dietary things we've spoken about already are completely relevant for women as they're going through the menopausal period. And also there's been some interest in phytoestrogens and, and how, estrogen, okay. or how phytoestrogens might help with some of the symptoms going through menopause. And can you just define a phytoestrogen? Yeah, sh- sure, Barbara. Uh, so phytoestrogens are kind of... Weak form of 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 estrogens. That, so when you talk about estrogens being principal hormones in females, there's there's a, a kind of weaker form of estrogen which you find in plant-based foods called phytoestrogens. So they behave similarly to estrogens in in the body, but they have much weaker effects. And they're found in thing in foods such as sesame seeds, flax seeds, soya products, and edamame beans. Um, tofu, uh, things like dried fruit. Actually, dark chocolate is a good source, which is good to know. Uh, And and brassica, (laughs) things like broccoli, is is a source of phytoestrogens. So there's there's a number of plant-based foods which contain these phytoestrogens. And there's been some work showing, at least in some women, they help uh, with cardiovascular health as women transition through the menopause. There's been less work done on brain health. But intuitively, I think, based on what we know on cardiovascular health, they may be helpful, at least for some women.
0: Yes, I do like the idea that we can have a range of options there, because like you're saying, not everybody wants to eat certain foods. So I think this, the supplements from an oil point of view is an interesting one, because I know from when you look at studies that people have done on on fish farming, for example, or the source of fish, not all fish have got the same levels of the, you know, the, the right omega-3s in them so it's it's interesting to see how the the production of certain foods that the actual quantities of the nutrients that we need might fluctuate over time so i think having supplements in there as an option is is also important but it, again it's, it's interesting that supplements are advertised to a lot of people and you don't necessarily know what is the right supplement so focusing just on omega-3 i think is important a message to
1: get across yes. Yeah, I mean the oily fish story is really interesting, and you're absolutely right, Barbara. A lot of the the sort of farm salmon these days contains lower levels of omega three than than the wild versions, because of course farm salmon need to be provided with it through their diets, and because fish oils are an expensive commodity, actually farm salmon are are provided with with less of the omega three than the wild salmon, so they tend to be lower in concentration. But there's excellent foods apart from salmon. Things like mackerel and herring are really rich sources of omega-3 and things like sardines. And they're very, very under-consumed foods in the UK. So, you know, the richest sources are things like mackerel and herring and sardines. So there's very good ways of affordably getting omega-3 in the diet other than salmon and tuna.
0: Yes I'm a huge fan of sardines it's something that I grew up with because where my parents are from sardines and mackerel is a, is a big food there people are used to eating it it's canned you know it's not necessarily fresh at all but canned sardines and canned mackerel is a, is a favorite there mm. so I've, Grown up with it. And I think it's very underrated because we know that Cornwall and Scotland, there's good sources of, um, of sardines and, and little fish that have got all of those nutrients mm. that we want. So it's a plug almost for the British seafood industry <laughs> as
1: well. well. Well, absolutely. You know, we produce huge amounts of herring and mackerel, the most of which we export. And, and actually, very few of us in the UK meet the recommendation to eat one portion of oily fish a week. And if we're thinking about simple ways to improve brain health, which are particularly important during the menopausal transition, then if I were to pick one thing, I would say oily fish is, is the one. So, um, yeah, I think I think we can all do better on that front.
0: Definitely. And I'm really pleased that through the thread of this conversation, I'm seeing foods that are traditionally consumed in West Africa and in the Afro-Caribbean diet have really come to the fore. So when you think about the sofrito sauce, you find that in the West African culture and Caribbean foods. And it's interesting how foods probably aren't given the same level of respect in other cultures you think well they're not not, not great we want to be eating something else but actually when you go back to the, the food that our grandparents were eating whole foods that used a lot of fish and a lot of tomatoes and onions what you're saying is we still need to be eating those foods so the food that my grandma was making I need to go back to really
1: yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And kind of in as whole a form as we can manage. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of these foods available now in, in all kinds of multi-ingredients dishes. But once you start to get to, into the ultra processed territory, then a lot of the benefits of, of these individual ingredients are kind of cancelled out by a lot of other things that are added to food. So I think eating these foods in as whole a form as possible is, is very, very good advice.
0: I'm going to go back to my mackerel, tinned mackerel on on toasted brown bread. That's going to see me through. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, the last segment, I'd like to talk about dementia. So we've talked about brain health and cognitive health. And you mentioned one in 14 people over the age of 65 are likely to get dementia. Have you got any more tips around dementia prevention? I know that you work with the Alzheimer's Research Organisation and they've got a really great website. We'll we'll talk about that later. But just
1: anything you can add? Yeah, I mean, there was a great report brought out in in 2020, uh, led by Jill Livingstone, which was called uh, Dementia Prevention, Intervention and Care. And they identified 12 modifiable risk factors, um, which are responsible for about 40% of our dementia risk. And, you know, diet is important for many of them, obviously, to stay physically active, um, and there's interesting research, and I haven't kept up, kept up with it fully, but but I'm sure it's still the case that if we engage in exercise where we have to think at the same time, it's particularly beneficial for brain health. So if you're out walking and you have to read a map, or if you're dancing and you have to follow instructions, or you're in the gym and you're part of a gym class where you have to actually think what you're doing, that that form of exercise yes. is particularly beneficial, um, which is really interesting. I mean, staying socially connected, the more the research is done, the more it's it's coming out as being important. You know, those, and interesting, it seems to be say, staying socially connected with friends seems to be better for your health than staying socially connected with family. I don't know what that says, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, 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 but friendships are particularly important. Um, so social connectivity seems to be tremendously important, you know, those Daily social interactions as part of our community groups or village groups or faith groups or just conversations on the telephone, tremendously important. I mean, the usual things like, you know, not smoking and limiting alcohol intake are are certainly very important for brain health, just as they are for cardiovascular health. And a really interesting one coming through is a decline in hearing seems to be really important for potential risk. So hearing loss really increases your risk of dementia, and actually getting a hearing aid really um, reduces your risk of dementia. So actually, for, for for those of us that are vain out there who think my, my hearing is declining, but I, I don't really want to get a hearing aid because I'm not I'm not old enough, or you know, I think it's it's really important that we retain good hearing into old age to reduce our risk of dementia. Um, So that's a really interesting one, which is coming through on the research.
0: The first time I came across hearing loss was about a week or so ago when I attended an event by Alzheimer's Research. And a question I have for you, because I'm probably not at that age yet. Is there a point at which we are mandatorily tested for hearing? I know... People who might work for organisations get a hearing test every year as part of their work. But for those of us who don't, is there any provision within the National Health
1: Service that you'll automatically get tested at a certain age? I don't know the answer to that, Barbara, but I'm sure, you know, if you just contact your GP surgery, they can tell you straight away. Uh, Because I think it's a very easy thing to do, to be honest. It's not a very sophisticated test. So I think if, if you if, if people are interested, just give their GP surgery a call and, and find out what they need to do.
0: That's really helpful advice, because like I say, I used to get tested at work on my last job. I used to get tested annually and now I don't work there anymore. I don't have that opportunity. And I do wonder whether hearing loss is not something you focus on because you gradually lose hearing over time. It's not like suddenly one day you wake up and you realise you can't hear. You probably don't realise that you're not hearing as well as you used to. Yeah,
1: I mean, just to say we don't fully understand what the physiological basis is for the link between hearing and and dementia risk, but certainly it's thought to be causal so that the hearing loss can come before your increased risk of dementia. So, you know, I think it's tremendously important that and, and I guess, you know, oftentimes as you lose your hearing you, you 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 become more socially isolated because you can't participate in conversations like you used to previously. And and perhaps you, you, you don't go to the same type of events you used to go to because you've got problem hearing. You know, you may you may have problem hearing at the cinema, or you may have problem, you know, hearing at parties or so forth. So I think it's it it it, it seems to kind of reduce your Social interaction. So I think it's quite important that if if you do think your hearing is declining, just just contact your GP surgery, and, and I'm sure they will quite easily be able to sign you up for a hearing test. That's
0: great advice, and it links nicely with what we were talking about in the last episode, which was social isolation and loneliness, and ensuring that we maintain that regular contact with friends, like you say, more so than family. But
1: moving uh, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I'll just uh, mention to people who are interested that Alzheimer's Research UK has got a link on their website called Think Brain Health, which, like Anne Marie's been saying, it's full of information about things you can do to improve your brain health and, and maintain your brain. Oh, actually, is
1: it improve or maintain? Which is it? I mean, I think both. Um, yeah, I, I think it's. I think it's it's both, but at least maintain and and you know, I I think okay. For, for some, it may improve, but I think at least maintain.
0: Well, let's go with that then. So do mm-hmm. you log on to the Think Brain Health Alzheimer's Research UK website where you can take a quiz to assess the current state of your brain health and also get some tips on how to maintain and hopefully improve it so I'd like to thank you Anne-Marie for a wealth of information I've certainly learned a lot of new things and got some more recipe tips and ideas for meals and also not to spend a lot of money on doing it you've reminded me of some of the cheaper things that we can do to have a good quality diet that will help us maintain good brain health so thank you very much for joining us my pleasure Barbara very nice to to see you Thank you for joining me on today's episode of the podcast, Women Positively Aging. It's been an absolute pleasure to host. I do hope you have enjoyed what you've heard and feel confident about making changes that will help you live well for longer. Do subscribe, give feedback, comment on social media. It'll be great to hear from you. Until next time, stay well and see you soon.